2020 was a test case of how important this kind of work is, how important voter education is, how important voter mobilization is, and people are just going to have to redouble their efforts. Welcome to episode 87 of How We Win. All over the country, people are doing extraordinary things. We're giving you the tools that you need to make a difference right now. We don't agonize, we organize. We've won some battles, but we've still got more work to do. Our voting rights are under attack. The For the People Act is in the Senate, but the filibuster stands in the way of its passing. How do we fight back against the biggest voter suppression campaign since the Reconstruction? Mother Jones reporter and voting rights expert Ari Berman returns to our show to give us some historical context and help us figure out what we can do about it. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Mariah Craven. And And this this is How How We Win. I can't wait for people to hear our conversation with our old friend of our podcast, Ari Berman. It's good. It's a good conversation. It gets a little dark. Well, I, you know what I said? I said afterwards that Steve walked away feeling, feeling hopeful and good about <laughs> things. So we must have turned it around. I'm always the, hopeful. The Republicans put us in a dark place, uh, but, but we reversed it. I'll tell you one thing um, that actually did. I don't know if it made me hopeful, but it put some... Um, good context to where we are. Uh, last time we talked to him was in April of last year. And mm. we were in... A lifetime s- ago. Yeah, a lifetime ago. And we were in such a dark place. And even with all of the problems that we're having right now with uh, our own Democratic senators that we wished were um, you know, in favor of abolishing the filibuster and helping us more and not blocking things, High Mansion, High Cinema, that's who I'm talking about specifically, mm-hmm. um, and uh, how difficult it is to get the slow, freaking deliberative body of the Senate to take action that we need. God, you know, I just think about the feeling we had after the election, before the Georgia special election, when we really didn't win a couple of those Senate seats that we were really hoping we were going to win. And uh, and it looked really dark. Like it was exciting that we won the presidency, but without the Senate, what was Mitch McConnell going to do with that gavel still in his hand? And um, to be reminded of the dark place we were in a year plus ago. Mm -hmm. And now where we are um, still fighting, it's not easy. It's a slog, but it did give me some context. Well, we've got uh, tips on how to how to do that and some uh, important historical context from Ari. Um, so um, we're going to put everybody to work by the end of this podcast. Get ready. That's right. Good. There we go. There's some optimism from Mariah. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but first, ha- happy pride. Yay. You know, what's really fun, I don't, uh, you're in Austin and uh, I'm here in LA where you used to be and West Hollywood has always been so fun uh, all the time, but uh, especially around Pride Month and uh, with the big parade. And now with things opening up, um, you know, we're actually seeing people out and about and celebrating. It's really cool. It's really fun. The first place that I saw a post-pandemic line, this was right before I left L.A., line of people waiting to get in to eat, was the Abbey. 
Oh yeah, which is, <laughs> which is, um, you know, a, like a historic gay club and bar, and they do. A, a, I think it was a Sunday brunch that I saw people lined up for. For our listeners, and that's in West Hollywood. That's in West Hollywood, and I was like, "LA's almost back, baby." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, and good on you if that if that's the first place you went post pandemic. <laughs> right to the Abbey, right back ready, to the Abbey. Ready for fun, yeah. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Of course, Pride is about celebration, but also about um, doubling down on our commitment to protect people's rights and humanity, and that is consistently under attack. Um, yep. And you know, at the moment. Um, a lot of Republican legislatures around the country are, are focused on attacking um, trans rights in particular. So mark this month by partying if, if, if you can, um, mm. but also by committing to, to protecting human beings' rights. Right. Thank you for that. And we're, you know, actually on pins and needles a little bit to see what the Supreme Court, um, this mm-hmm. Thursday, there's another round of decisions that will be coming and um, definitely some that threaten uh, trans rights and, and those of the LGBTQ community. So uh, I don't know if that'll come out on Thursday or not. We don't know what they're going to um, be ruling on, but... It's always a surprise. Yeah, the I don't envy people who um, who are on SCOTUS watch all the time. That's... <laughs> Seems stressful. <laughs> stressful. But I always think back to... Um, when they um, defended marriage equality, and that was in the middle of Pride Month, and that was just a—I'm getting goosebumps thinking about mm. it—celebratory moment. So I, I hope we—I hope we get a repeat this month. Yes, yes, me too. Meanwhile, back in D.C., <laughs> Joe Manchin. My oh. God. Well, we're going to talk a lot about. Joe Manchin, the Florida People Act is hitting the Senate right now. It looks bleak, but we are going to uh, fight for it. And and this uh, is a big bill that would protect voting rights at the federal level. And it's a counter to these um, state Republican officials that that are trying to suppress the votes in their individual states. Right. And it was the first uh, House bill that was passed after the midterms when we mm-hmm. uh, right. first elected a, a Democratic House and handed the gavel back to Nancy Pelosi. H.R. 1 just the most sweeping voting rights bill since the Voting Rights Act. And uh, it does more than just make it a national holiday and expand voting access, but it also addresses dark money in in elections and how we finance elections, which I think gets lost in a lot of, of what we're focused on right now because we're so focused on the attacks that these local legislatures are making on voting rights. But getting dark money out of our politics and out of our elections is uh, so, so important. I mean, the ability for these organizations to set up packs where we don't know where the money is coming from. And in some cases, they literally write legislation for the elected officials and, and uh, looking right. at Heritage Foundation. So Ari talks a little bit about that too, but that's a provision in this that I think we really need to make sure it goes through regardless of of what happens. We need to address the dark money in our politics. Definitely. Um, one thing that I'm super optimistic about is uh, Go Stacey, on. A- 
Stacey Abrams and her organization, Fair Fight, which helped turn out so many voters in, in Georgia just last year. Um, they just launched a program called Hot Call Summer. And they're going to be mobilizing young people around taking action this month to let their senators know that they want the For the People Act passed. Love it. Uh, so last year we had Hot Girl Summer. I guess the, the Hot Girl Summer was the year before. Everybody was locked down this year. Hot Call Summer is here. So we're going to share with you in a few minutes how you can get in on the action. Love it. My daughter is excited about Hot Girl Summer, so when I tell her that she has an opportunity to make calls, she's going to be even more excited about that, right? Oh, the kids are going to love <laughs> this, us telling them about this. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's exciting um, and, and absolutely what we need to be doing and focused on right now. That sound means it's time for our Hero of the Week. <laughs> I got a very nice note from a friend who said uh, Hero of the Week is a great segment, but it needs its own music. So now we're being liberal with some music. I love it. So this week's Hero of the Week, last week we were in Texas um, talking about the legislators that walked out of session to prevent the terrible GOP-led voter suppression bill. This week... We are back in Texas again. And look, we need I, a lot of heroes here. <laughs> you have a lot of heroes in Texas. I love it. And everyone knows about this already. Everyone knows about this person. Uh, she went viral for good reason. So it almost feels like old news because this is almost a week old. But because my own daughter, Point of Privilege, is graduating on Monday, has her high school graduation, of course, wow. uh, I want to showcase Lake Highlands High School valedictorian Paxton Smith, who threw out her pre-approved speech and decided to use her platform to speak up for abortion rights. Mariah, last week you talked about this awful heartbeat bill that the te right. Texas legislature also uh, felt was important to pass. It was a law passed by Governor Greg Abbott that prohibits abortions after six weeks, even in the case of rape or incest. So Paxton threw out her speech that was approved, and mm -hmm. here's what she said. I am terrified that if I am raped, then my hopes and aspirations and dreams and efforts for my future will no longer matter. I hope that you can feel how gut-wrenching that is. I hope you can feel how dehumanizing it is to have the autonomy over your own body taken away from you. So powerful. Thank you, Paxton Smith, for using your platform. You are our hero of the week. And now it's time for our reasons for hope. Really heavy-handed um, with with the musical uh, interludes this episode. <laughs> I like it. I like it. What's okay. your reason for hope, Mariah? So my reason for hope is a little. It's a little bit twisty, and I've been thinking a lot about it. And it, it came to you. I had an aha moment this week, um, where um, I was thinking about these unemployment supplements that the government has been providing people. So a uh, 
if you are on unemployment, if you lost your job during the pandemic, they kicked in um, an additional amount of money that in some cases meant that people are now earning on unemployment more than they did at their jobs. And that has put pressure on the job market. And now um, there are some governors, not the one in Texas, thanks again, Greg Abbott, that are continuing the supplements. And there are some business owners who are complaining that we can't find people to hire. We have these job openings, but nobody wants to work because they're getting so much money. Um, it's because you weren't paying them enough. Right. And I think in some places, this is going to be a de facto wage raise mm. because now these employers that were paying people seven, eight, nine dollars an hour, which is not enough to live on in the overwhelming majority of places in this country, will now have to pay them more and offer incentives, offer benefits, offer health care and family leave and things like that. We have treated workers and low wage workers in particular so poorly for so long um, and refused to give them a raise in most places. Um, And now um, people are going to be forced to do it. And I know that the the pushback against that is that that increased cost gets passed along to the consumer. And I want us as consumers to really take a hard look at that and ask why. And it might be it might be that way for small businesses in some cases, but a lot of the companies that are hiring these low wage workers are huge companies. And I want us to look at what their CEOs and C-suite executives exactly. are getting paid. That's what I was what just their thinking. Stockholders are getting paid. Right. I want us to look at, you know, when we're frustrated about prices increasing at Walmart, let's look at the highest paid execs at Walmart. And let's look at the number of people who work at Walmart who are on food stamps and ask ourselves um, who we're frustrated with and what we're willing to um put up with. So um, my hope is that as the job market becomes a job seekers market, that people get fair wages and good benefits and better lives because of this. Yeah. An article just dropped in the New York Times um, that wealthiest executives paid little to nothing in federal income taxes. Check out the uh, ProPublica reporting on that. All these tax records were unearthed and... um, it is just the top 20 the 25 richest people in this country paid virtually no taxes and that i i've been self-employed for for a minute and i pay a lot in taxes and and it hurts every year and and mm. that really stings um yep and you know we're always pitted against each other. We're always angry at the, at the wrong people. And frankly, I would I would pay more for French fries if it meant that somebody uh, had making a, the a fries was getting life. a livable rate yeah. wage. Yeah, I love that. It's a really great framing and really interesting to think of. You know, the um, unemployment supplements pushing wages up as a de facto minimum wage increase. So that's uh, that is very hopeful. That's thank you for sharing your perspective. Tell me about your reason for hope this week. Uh, well, my reason for hope, uh, we've talked a lot about uh, some bad governors. Um, 
Vermont Governor Phil Scott, a Republican, signed legislation on Monday that allows mail-in voting for all future general elections, making permanent a pandemic-era rule designed to increase voter participation amid the public health crisis. So this gives me hope because, okay, Vermont is, you know, not a deep red state, but it does have a Republican governor, and this Republican governor has signed legislation to make it easier for people to vote. And, um, you know, of course, we're going to talk a lot about it with Ari, and it is our focus right now, protecting voting rights. But it is refreshing news to actually have a Republican who is signing a bill to expand access to the vote as opposed to suppress uh, access to the ballot. All right. Good job, Vermont and Governor Scott. Did you hear that? (laughs) (laughs) That can only mean one thing, Mariah. It's time for our to-do list. (laughs) Um, So we've gotten people fired up. We've given them some hope. Now it's time to take action as usual. So we are going to ask our senators to pass the For the People Act. Damn straight um, so we are. Particularly if, you, if you've if you got a Republican senator or two, make sure that you call their office and tell them that you want your voting rights protected. Um, every step we've taken toward progress in this country has been met with resistance. From ending enslavement to enacting the 40-hour work week to celebrating marriage equality, like we mm-hmm. were talking about earlier. But we've proven every time that people of good conscience will rise against any challenge to claim our freedom as our own. Now we're at another turning point for our nation. This is where we decide if we're going to move forward together to protect our freedom to vote and ensure that we all have a say in the key decisions that impact us or whether we're going to allow a minority of politicians to take away our rights. Mm -hmm. I say no, and I think you do too. So just as we turned out in record numbers in the midst of a pandemic, let's come together now and demand that our leaders exercise their majority, eliminate the filibuster, and pass the For the People Act so that we can make the promise of democracy real for us all. I know that this might not be the day that you want to pick up the phone and call the Senate, but today is that day. We need you to do that today. Absolutely. It's time to call. And in the meantime, let's get some more context and knowledge around the For the People Act and uh, what's going on with voting rights with our friend Ari Berman. Ari Berman is a former senior contributing writer for The Nation magazine and is a senior reporter at Mother Jones covering voting rights. He's the author of Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America, and has written extensively about American politics, civil rights, and the intersection of money and politics. He's a frequent guest and commentator on MSNBC, NPR, and joins us for the second time on How We Win. Ari, welcome back. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me back. Good to see you guys. Too. We last spoke in April 2020. <laughs> What's new? A lot has happened <laughs> since then. We 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 saved our democracy and and now we're now we're losing it. So I guess it's, it all it all goes in waves. 
Yeah, so let's Sisyphean. <laughs> let's try to think back to uh, the 2020 election, which feels like a lifetime ago um, yeah. already, uh, and then the special election in Georgia right after. Uh, did things turn out as you expected? Were you, were you surprised by anything? I was, yeah. I mean, I was incredibly concerned about the election mm -hmm. on a whole host of levels. I would say I was most concerned about what was going to happen in the run-up to the election mm -hmm. and less concerned about what was going to happen after. And those things ended up flipping in terms of what actually happened. Mm -hmm. So I was really concerned initially about how voting in a pandemic would work and states' abilities to handle mail voting in larger numbers and voters' ability to handle mail voting in larger numbers. And I was really concerned that between the fact that so many states uh, hadn't used mail voting in large numbers, uh, combined with the voter suppression efforts, combined with attempts to hobble the post office, all of those things were going to lead to a very high rates of voter disenfranchisement and high rates of rejected ballots, potentially in excess of the margin of victory in key states. And to, to my surprise, that part of it actually went more smoothly than I expected. Now, there's a lot of different reasons why, but I think a big part of it was there was a tremendous amount of voter education done. And there was more voter education done in 2020 than I think every previous election I've covered combined in terms wow. of all the fine points about how to cast your ballot. People had so much information going in about how to vote. And so many people voted early, 80% of people voted early, which really led to many fewer problems because people had so much more time to figure out what they wanted to do to make a plan to vote, which kind of became the tagline. So actually the fact that the level of ballot rejections was lower in 2020 than it was in 2016. And that, that's mm -hmm. remarkable. And I think that's yeah. just because of all the voter education uh, that was done. That part of the election went more smoothly than I expected. The part that didn't go as I expected is everything that happened afterwards. Right. So I, I was always a little weary of all the doomsday scenarios. I didn't really think they were going to happen. And honestly, for about two weeks, it looked like they weren't going to happen. I mean, the Joe Biden was declared president, I think, on that Saturday. So mm -hmm. like four days after the election, yeah, there was that, you know, there was that period of instability and there was Trump lying about vote dump stuff like that. But I thought that stuff was going to settle down pretty quickly. And people like Mitch McConnell were going to, this seems so so naive in retrospect, but people <laughs> like Mitch McConnell, just like they had done in every previous election, were just going to say, Joe Biden's the president. Let's move on. And so what I didn't expect, and obviously now that I know, I will, I'll never expect this again, but I didn't expect there to be a two-month period of overturning the election uh, and an insurrection because of it and how close we came in so many different places to those democratic norms breaking. They ultimately held, but mm -hmm. you know, if not for the decision of you know, one county canvasser in Michigan or one person here, or one person there, it, it could have been a lot messier. So I guess the election went smoother than I thought, but the aftermath of the election was a lot rockier than I expected. I think probably a lot of us share that sentiment. And I remember our interview very well. First of all, because 
because it was one of the early ones in the pandemic that we were doing remote and it was just kind of weird to be, uh, (laughs) (laughs) you know, recording an interview in the pandemic um, with all the uncertainty. But uh, it was a great rallying cry for our volunteers about how hard they had to work for that voter education piece and to help the campaigns. uh, so that we could make sure that the voters were able to overcome all the obstacles. And um, now we're in a similar boat where we have a rallying cry because there's even more obstacles to overcome. I mean, you've been talking uh, a lot about the big lie, uh, Trump's false claim that he actually won the election. And we just talked about the run up to that and how it's being weaponized by these GOP led legislatures all across the country now. Um how much damage has been done to our democracy and how do we counter that lie? Well, a tremendous amount of damage has been done to our democracy. First off, millions of people believe things that aren't true. Yeah. And so that's that's the first damage that has been done. Secondly, once you start to normalize things like overturning the elections, it's very hard to roll that kind of thing back. Like now there is a template for how to do this kind of thing. It doesn't mean that it's a respectable template because it's not, but it's, it's it exists out there in terms of the steps one would take to overturn an election. And, and again, that is that is really chilling. And then, I mean, the laws themselves do a tremendous amount of damage. First off, just the fact that it's happening does a lot of damage. I mean, all the other things that these legislatures could be doing, and this is what they're spending their time on. Right. Um, but, but all, but I mean, obviously, in a lot of concrete ways, it's becoming harder to vote, uh, and so people are going to have to adjust that reality in the same way that people had to adjust in 2020 to things being different. Now, the voting methods they used in 2020 are going to look different. Now, there's going to be fewer drop boxes in places mm-hmm. like Georgia. Their, their election officials aren't going to be able to send out absentee ballot request forms. Uh, it might be harder p- to collect ballots. It might be harder to register voters. There might be less time for early voting. Uh, there might It might be easier to uh, throw out ballots. After the election, there might be more opportunity for partisan officials uh, to try to overturn the election right. results. I mean, so this is the, people are just going to have to adapt, which doesn't mean that it's impossible because in no state did they just prevent people from voting, right? I mean, basically what they've done is they've tinkered with a lot of different things. And I think this is what's different about this legislation than, for example, legislation that I've passed in, I've covered in years past. In years past, usually you would have like one major law, like a voter ID law, right? Um, But now there's like 18 provisions. So you have to kind of like look through all of them and say, okay, what's going to be the most harmful? What's going to have the biggest impact? And and then it just makes makes it more difficult um, to organize. So I just think that the voter education that was done in 2020 is going to be even more important in 2022 and 2024, because the laws themselves have become more restrictive, meaning that people will need even more guidance about how to vote, uh, because they, the, the methods they used in 2020 might have been curtailed or eliminated. Um, I think that's a really Im- important point, and it echoes what Steve was saying, that this is an opportunity for our volunteers and the campaigns that we support to really um, get out there and and talk to to voters about the changes that that are coming. 
Um, one of the, the things that will help people understand um, what's going on and, and the context of what's happening is an article that you had in Mother Jones last week that really drives home the parallels between the attack on voting rights in the South during Reconstruction and what the GOP is doing now. Can you know We're going to encourage people to, to read the article, but can you give us a little bit of, of historical context right now? Or just read the article out loud. Too. That's <laughs> yeah. It's only 5,000 words. So. You know I when think you if click, you go to the website, you can't you can listen. You know when you it. click on those things and it's, it always says like how much time it takes to listen, you're like, oh, now I know how long. So I think mine's like probably like 37 minutes or something. Um, you could probably read it a lot quicker than you would you could listen to it. But I know these days everyone wants it, everything in audio form. Um, I mean, basically, the piece is looking at the parallels between the end of Reconstruction uh, and today and basically saying that history is repeating itself in uh, very uncomfortable and eerie ways. And both in terms of specifics of laws being passed, but also in terms of big picture historical trends. And the big picture historical trend is that during Reconstruction, you had turnout of Black voters for the first time. Blacks were enfranchised. They won offices. Yep. The South became had a multiracial government for the first time. And then there was a vicious white backlash. And the form of the vicious white backlash, first it took what I think of as extra legal means, violence, fraud, intimidation, things that were technically illegal, uh, but the federal government or the state governments turned a blind eye to it. And that reduced Black voting in large numbers. But the real disenfranchisement, the total disenfranchisement, franchisement came through legal means when states like Mississippi changed their constitution to pass poll taxes and literacy tests and property requirements and things like that. And that's when black voting completely collapsed. And that's when we got a one party rule in the South with Jim Crow uh, for nearly a century. And what I'm saying is the broad arc of history is repeating today in the sense that you had high turnout in 2020 turnout that was elevated among new demographic groups, communities of color, that was followed by attempts to try to overturn the election through extra legal means, not just going through the mm -hmm. courts, but of course, trying to throw out votes and ultimately culminating in an insurrection. Then that was followed by quote unquote legal attempts to try to get an electoral advantage. And that's where all these state legislative sessions come in. So it's not to say that the laws passed now are as bad as literacy tests or poll taxes, but right. it's a similar animating principle, which is that you failed to overturn the election, you failed to win the election, you failed to disenfranchise new groups. So now you're trying to go through the political process to change things. It's a lot easier to try to fix an election before anyone has voted than to try to overturn it after the fact. And that's the mm -hmm. lesson they learned from, from 2020. And then there's just a lot of similarities in terms of, you know, back during Jim Crow, everyone has this idea that they just flat out wrote in the laws Black people couldn't vote. They never did that. They said that. They said that over and over. The laws themselves never said that. The laws themselves were technically race neutral. And when they talked about them, they, they said that this was going to protect the purity of the ballot box. This was going to promote election integrity. <laughs> and so a lot of the arguments that are being made today have echoes uh, in things that happened back then. And in some cases, they're just one-to-one -one comparisons. Like in the Texas law, right. they said in the bill that it was meant to protect the purity of the ballot box. And that was the language that was used when Congress repealed the Reconstruction Laws in 1893. So, I mean, it was like almost a perfect copy of it. So, uh, there's there's a lot of similarities. And I think people sometimes think, well, okay, well, it's not as bad as then. So, obviously, the, the situations can't be similar. And, and my point is, they're 
they're they're eerily similar considering how how little you'd like society to be compared to back then right now yeah uh, a lot of important parallels there's uh even a uh, senator mansion character back then that's a good parallel to what's going on today not to endlessly dunk on mansion but the the for the people act is now in markup in the senate and Senator Manchin has recently stated that he does not support the bill as is. And both Manchin and Senator Sinema have said they don't support filibuster reform. I, I suspect there's a few other Democrats that don't either that are, you know, gleefully hiding hiding behind Manchin and Sinema's profile there. But certainly we would have to repeal uh, or reform the filibuster to pass the For the People Act. Can you talk about the For the People Act and describe what in your mind are the most important provisions? It's looking increasingly like we're not going to be able, I'm not giving up, it's just a markup right now, so we're gonna still fight for, for it as is, but uh, it looks like we may be able to take some piecemeal. Um, what, what's your perspective on, on that? Well, first off, in terms of the historical parallels, it is really interesting because in 1890, when Mississippi was rewriting its constitution to disenfranchise black voters, Congress passed a bill, the House passed a bill that would have basically had federal supervision of elections so that you couldn't just outright steal or disenfranchise voters. And it was really the last major attempt to try to enforce the 15th Amendment at the end of Reconstruction. And it passed the House, and then it went to the Senate, and it faced a filibuster. And as that filibuster went on, you had these Western senators from small mining states that joined forces with the Democrats to kill this bill. And basically, after that, the federal government gave up trying to protect Black voting rights. And then from 1890 to 1907, every Southern state changed their constitution to disenfranchise Black voters. So I think there's a lot of similarities between the failure of Congress to protect the voting rights back then and what could happen now if Congress fails to act and uh, Republican-controlled states just feeling completely emboldened that they can basically do whatever they want and there's going to be no consequences uh, for them. I think the most important parts of the For the People Act are the ones that would expand voting access uh, for tens of millions of Americans and also, by doing so, stop a lot of these GOP voter suppression efforts. So if every state has automatic registration and election day registration and two weeks of early voting and access to mail ballots, then it's very hard to get rid of those things because those are the rules for federal elections that Congress has the power uh, to pass them. So I would say all of the things that makes it easy to vote are the most important parts of HR1 and to me, the things that are non-negotiable uh, in terms of it, because if you start getting rid of that, then what is the bill at the end of the day? The other thing that I think is really important is, and this is something that people seem to want to get rid of, which I think is a mistake, is looking at the connections between voter suppression and dark money. Mm. Because you know, we published this big story in Mother Jones a few weeks ago about how Heritage Action, the sister organization of the Heritage Foundation, claimed credit in this leaked video to top donors about how they wrote all these state-level voter suppression bills. So that's a dark money group that doesn't have to disclose its donors, that's leading the campaign to pass voter suppression laws. And the fact that we don't know who's funding them, we don't know a lot about their operations, and they're leading the campaign uh, to make it dip more difficult to vote, I think shows the connection between dark money and voter suppression. So it's not like they just put this stuff in there without thinking about it. Uh, and I think that that's where, I mean, people are, are trying to split it up, but the people that are trying to split it up haven't thought about the bill 
nearly as much as the people that have sponsored the bill and wrote the bill. And a lot of care has gone into this. And I think one of the misnomers about the For the People Act is that it really just draws on what the states have already done successfully. And a lot of that is Republican controlled states. Like Georgia has automatic voter registration. Utah has universal mail voting. Texas has two weeks of early voting. Like I can give you an example of pretty much every part of the For the People Act has some policy that's already been implemented in a Republican controlled state. So like it's being portrayed as this massive power grab, but in fact, it's just drawing what the states are already doing, including many Republican controlled states. And when people say it's not bipartisan, well, you have to redefine what bipartisan is because 70% of the public supports it. So it's bipartisan. It's just that Republican officials aren't supporting it Mm. because Republicans are engaged in the greatest rollback of voting rights since the end of reconstruction. So why would they support a bill that would stop that? Um, So I, I, me, it's not surprising at all that um, Republicans don't support it. Why didn't Democrats support the 15th Amendment in 1870? Why didn't a single Democrat in Congress vote for the, eight, the, eight, the 15th Amendment in 1870? Because they were, they were white supremacists. <laughs> they didn't support the 15th Amendment because they were white supremacists. And the reason why Republicans aren't supporting voter suppression right now, aren't opposing voter suppression right now, is because they are the vote suppressors. It's not, this is not really, to me, uh, this is not like a great breakthrough that I think Joe Manchin has to have to figure out why this is. So let me just ask uh, then, uh, what's up with Joe Manchin? (laughs) Well, I mean, listen, I think a lot of things are up with Joe Manchin. I mean, he obviously represents a very conservative state. Uh, He either ideologically or politically feels like there are issues in which he has to break um, with the Biden administration. And to some extent, I get that. I think if it was a climate change bill and he represents a mining state, I would expect him to have some reservations about parts of the policy. It wouldn't be that I agree with it, but I would understand it based on who his constituency. I think protecting American democracy is so fundamental, though, that it's not the kind of thing that you can abdicate your responsibility for. And I think the thing that Joe Manchin is missing is that, number one, the For the People Act has bipartisan support, but number two... Republicans are engaged in the very thing that he's accusing Democrats of doing, which is unilaterally changing election laws to try to benefit one party. That's what Republicans are doing right now. Republicans are the ones that are unilaterally changing the rules because they lost an election. Democrats are just trying to expand voting access for millions of Americans. Nobody knows at the end of the day who's going to benefit from these policies. Like I said, Georgia had automatic voter registration for five, six years now. And they won a bunch of elections under that system. Utah is an all Republican state and they have universal mail voting. Did mail voting doom the Republican party in Utah? Like, no. I mean, people adapt to the voting laws. And at the end of the day, that's not really what decides elections, except at the margins. And so I think- well, We have ideas about that or the or the Republicans wouldn't be working so hard to, uh, to make it harder for people to vote. They would, so, but I think the reason they're making it so hard for people to vote is because they've just given up on trying to push popular policies. Right. That's all they have left. But I think if you're if you're committed to pushing popular policies, you're not worried about what the voting laws might look like because you believe that you can win on your own ideas. And I think Republicans don't believe they can win on their own ideas, which is why they're spending so much time engaging in 
voter suppression. Um, but I, but I think that that Manchin just has this whole thing backwards in terms of the partisanship here. And I think really the way to ultimately appeal to him is in terms of a sense of history. Uh, and do you want to be viewed as the guy that allowed the greatest rollback of voting rights since the end of Reconstruction? And I think I'm not sure that's going to do it, but I think that's the only way to try to reach him is to say this is going to have a much greater impact on the kind of bipartisanship you're seeking than doing nothing at all, that you're basically going to allow one party to completely rewrite the rules of American politics. And the fact that he's equating an attempt to overturn an election with policies that make it easier to vote is just a crazy amount of false equivalence, which which is really that he isn't even really writing um, this stuff, that it's coming from, you know, the Chamber of Commerce and those kind of people that are right Mm -hmm. now having a lot more influence with him than, you know, voting rights people. Because if he was talking to voting rights people, he wouldn't be saying that kind of stuff. So what's the recourse here? I mean, I want to go back to what you said about, um, I think, 70% of of voters support HR1. The Republicans aren't listening. Joe Manchin isn't listening. Um, without him, this this doesn't get through. So, have we have we given up? Steve hasn't. He said he hasn't. Have you given <laughs> Have you given up hope on this bill? No, but I mean, I think the the question. I, I think if Joe Manchin isn't going to support this, and he's going to support um, the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, which right. again, I I think it's a huge mistake to view this as either or, because I think these Mm -hmm. bills are different and they work together and they address different things. Um, But I think, you know, if that's the bill he supports, then I think that he needs to go down the route of trying to get 10 Republican senators to support him. And if he can't get 10 Republican senators and he feels very strongly in favor of this bill, then I think the question becomes, what are you prepared to do? Are you prepared to do nothing? And I think some level of election reform needs to pass the Congress that would counter voter suppression. Will it be the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act and the For the People Act? It's not looking like it. Does that mean that nothing can pass? No, I don't think so. But the question is, what does that look like? And I just have a very hard time seeing how anything passes with 60 votes. So I think at some point, if Manchin feels more positively towards the John Lewis law for one reason or another, um, then I think he has to figure out, well, what's the strategy for passing it? I mean, because that bill at least fits his criteria of being bipartisan. Lisa Murkowski of Alaska supports it. So it has bipartisan support. And the question is, are you then letting 49 Republicans have veto power over protecting American democracy. And it's even smaller than that because what you're really saying is, are you letting 41 Republican senators have veto power over American democracy? And I think when the when the, the senators in Georgia ran for election, they said they were gonna pass a new Voting Rights Act, they didn't have an asterisk under it saying, only if Mitch McConnell lets us. And I think that's why they're so passionate about trying to get this done because they know, number one, it needs to happen. Number two, they made a promise to voters that they were going to get this done. Uh, And I think Joe Manchin is undercutting democracy, broadly speaking, but I also think he's really undercutting the Democratic Party, of which he 
claims to care about and remains a member. And I mean, he could have he could have decided long ago that he didn't want to be a Democrat in West Virginia. It would have been the politi- politically expedient thing for him to do. He stayed in the party. So mm-hmm. clearly he feels some affinity for the party. So why is he taking steps that are going to undermine the ability of the Democratic Party to have a majority in future elections? So like Mariah said, we're not done fighting. It's just in markup right now, and um, and we have a lot of work to do. There's a lot of people, um, organizations that are staging actions to put pressure on senators to uh, to get this through. So we're we're not done fighting. But let's just talk briefly about a plan B. Uh, if we're not able to um, get rid of the filibuster or reform the filibuster and pass either of these important uh, laws. How do we fight what's going on in these state houses? What's the role of volunteers and activists to um, to push back against the laws that are being passed right now? Well, I think it's just the on the ground organizing that worked so well in 2020. I mean, 2020 was a test case of how important this kind of work is, how important voter education is, how important voter, voter mobilization is. And people are just gonna have to redouble their efforts according to the law. I mean, the, the good news is, you know, in Georgia, they failed to pass some of the most sweeping voting restrictions. They didn't get rid of no excuse absentee voting. They didn't get rid of automatic registration. They didn't get rid of Sunday voting. They want to do all those things and they didn't do it. So, I mean, there, there were already victories. Now, it's, it's hard to feel great about that when they pass all these other restrictions, but the point is it, it could have been worse. And so people still have the ability to go out and vote and organize in Georgia. People still have the ability to go out and vote and organize uh, in Texas, in Florida, and other states. Now, people are going to have to understand that some of the things might change. There might be fewer drop boxes, for example. You might have to apply for an absentee ballot as opposed to having one uh, sent to you. Uh, you might have to comply with new ID requirements that you didn't need before. I think all these things are unnecessary, but I think that kind of organizing is going to be really important. Um, and so I think that's that's really going to be the key role of, of volunteers and just to try to have that same level of enthusiasm uh, and effort in 2022 that that was there in 2020. I mean, in 2020, it was this, you know, big sexy thing where every single celebrity was, was telling you how to apply for an absentee ballot. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't know if we're going to see that in 2022. So, I mean, I think it, that that's where the volunteers and the organizers become all the more important because uh, they're going to be the ones that have to fill the void. And I don't think we should expect it to come from necessarily the election officials that are running some of these states, because in some in some places they are the problems, or they are facing primary challengers and things like that. So you know, I will ex- I would expect the Georgia Secretary of State to act very differently mm-hmm. uh, in 2022 than he acted during the last election, because now he's worried about a primary challenger, and now Trump's on his case and all that kind of yeah. thing. So, um, but but it's 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 all possible. Uh, it just requires people redoubling their work. I, I like ending on that on that, on that positive note there. Yeah. <laughs> so our, our final question, I, I wish I would have gone back and listened again to the the podcast from over a year ago to, to see what you said. It was, a, um, it was very dark. There was a lot of gloom and doom. <laughs> I know it was a strange time. Um, but we, we always end with the same question, which is uh, what gives you the most hope for our future right now? Well, I mean, just the fact that we can go outside again and starting to resume our lives. I mean, I think, I think just from a, a political standpoint and an organizing standpoint, we lost a lot 
by not being able to do a lot of the yeah. on the ground organizing uh, and especially in a voting context. I mean, it was really hard for me as a reporter to not cover elections uh, by going to places. And I think right. it was really hard for organizers to have to do this kind of work on Zoom as opposed to being able um, to do it in person. Uh, and I, so I think just being able to go back into the world uh, and engage as a community again, I think you know that that is definitely what I'm hopeful about. And I think the the news can still be a major bummer when you look at it on kind of like a day-to-day what is Joe Manchin doing basis. But if you look at like the big picture and think about how shitty things were when we last talked and how much better they are today in terms of the ability to resume our lives, I think that's the hopeful part. And I think that'll also have an impact um, on on politics itself because I think uh, being an organizer, being an activist is all about engaging as part of a community. And it's a lot easier to engage as part of a community when you can safely do it in person as opposed to doing it behind a computer on Zoom. Absolutely. That I'm looking forward to getting back out there. Yeah. (laughs) Knocking on doors. And I think that's going to make a huge difference. Like you said, there was some very tight margins and some losses that we had by very tight margins that being out in the field would have made a difference there. So absolutely, um, we've got work to do. We have our marching orders. And Ari, thank you so much for checking back in with us a year later <laughs> and uh, at, at a really pivotal time in our in our country right now where uh, your voice and knowledge is is so important so thanks for joining us thanks so much guys i appreciate it Thank you for joining us today. This is how we win. We win when we all get involved and stay engaged. How are you staying engaged this year? We want to hear from you. Tweet to us at BluesBoySteve and at Mariah underscore Craven, or send us an email at podcast at swingleft.org. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review on Apple or wherever you get your pods and let everyone know you're listening. Share our show on social media. Check out our page at swingleft.org slash podcast. And of course, sign up to volunteer. We really appreciate you being here with us. We're going to be talking all about Virginia next week. So we'll see you back next Wednesday. See ya. See ya.